The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. In 1983, the Russian dissident and historian Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave the Templeton Lecture in London, England. The title of that talk was Godlessness, the First Step to the Gulag. And he began his speech with these words. More than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. And that's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. What is more, the events of the Russian Revolution can only be understood now at the end of the century against the background of what has since occurred in the rest of the world. What emerges here is a process of universal significance. And if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here, too, I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. It's a terrible thing not to know God. But it's a far worse thing to have known God or know about God and to forget Him. When God is little more than a memory, your mind can trick itself into thinking that it still has God, still honors God, still reveres God, while in reality it is disregarding Him as God. That was the case with the nation of Israel during the era when they were led by judges. And brothers and sisters, honesty demands that we admit such is the case with many Christians and Christian churches in the 21st century in America. To forget God does not mean that you outright reject Him or that you become irreligious or atheistic altogether. Rather, it means that God rests lightly on your life. That He largely becomes incidental to what is significant in your life. You can still be religious while forgetting God. It's just that your religion now largely becomes the product of your own design. It will be your own concoction, accepting whatever ideas and practices might seem good to you and ignoring all of the rest without any real qualms of conscience. And that's what homemade religion actually is. It's acknowledging God to some degree, without fully submitting to Him as God. And we saw that last week on Sunday morning in our study of Judges chapters 17 and 18. And we will see it again this morning from a slightly different angle 
as we look at chapters 19, 20, and 21. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, that section of Judges, the closing section, begins on page 218. And I encourage you to take a copy of the Scriptures and open up and follow along as we look into the Word of God to hear what it is that He has to say to us today. The last five chapters of Judges give us a glimpse of what life was like in Israel from the time that they entered the promised land and, and were able to settle it to the time that the first king was given to them in a succession of kings to rule over them. These last five chapters are the conclusion of the book. And they remind us that despite the good things that many of the judges had done during that two to four hundred year period, none of those judges was the savior that Israel ultimately needed. In and through everything that the individual judges accomplished, Israel was left worshiping God according to their own dictates. And consequently, they were living according to their own standards of what they considered to be right and wrong. Last week, we noted that homemade religion will deceive you while destroying you. Today, what we're going to see is that homemade religion always leaves you morally bankrupt. This is made plain in the last three chapters of Judges. These chapters tell one big story. It starts in the 19th chapter with a domestic conflict, a squabble between a man and his quasi-wife. It inadvertently then leads to a civil war amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it ends with an effort to restore one of those tribes that was nearly wiped out in that civil war. These chapters are a sordid tale, brilliantly told, incredibly set before us to teach us the Word of God. They highlight the degeneration that inevitably occurs when people forget God and make up their own religion. And there are three important lessons I want us to see from these last three chapters as we study them together this morning. First is that homemade religion creates moral confusion. Secondly, homemade religion causes perversion of justice. But then thirdly and finally and most hopefully, homemade religion cannot outsin God's grace. So look with me beginning in chapter 19. I want to read starting in verse 1, page 218, all the way down to the end of this chapter as we start thinking about this portion of the scripture this morning. So hear God's word from Judges chapter 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his, father, to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. 
So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned, and it's toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here. Let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they neared Jebus, the day was near, and the servant said to him, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said to him, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys and bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, be, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here my virgin daughter and his concubine, let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on his donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her 
limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Homemade religion creates moral confusion. Moral confusion is the sub-theme of these last three chapters, but it is highlighted in this 19th chapter. The chapter introduces to us another Levite. If you were here last week, you remember that there was a Levite who was the main character of much of that story. And now we have another Levite, a man from the tribe of Levi, that tribe that God set apart from which would be drawn holy men who would serve as priests for his people. This Levite has a concubine, a woman who's not strictly his wife, but with whom he lives as if she were his wife. Having a concubine was not strictly forbidden at this point in Israel's history, though it fell far short of what God's ideal was for relationships between men and women. The ideal that he set forth at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 when he created Adam, then he created Eve, and he gave Eve to Adam, and the two became one flesh, teaching us, as Jesus reiterates, that God's will for marriage is one man, one woman, and a one flesh relationship for all of life. So here we see this man not following that ideal, but having a concubine. And he is morally confused. We, we see this in the way that he responds to the squabble. She was unfaithful to him. And she goes back home to be with her dad. And then after some months, he decides to go after her to try to bring her back home, to receive her back. And yet, despite those good motives of wanting to be reunited with her, when push comes to shove in the city of Gibeah, he gives her up to be gang-raped by those worthless men of Gibeah. Verse 25, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. When he sees her the next morning lying there on the stoop, her hands at the threshold, how does he respond? What does he do? He doesn't do anything. He responds gruffly. You see what he says? He tells her, get up. Let's be going. Verse 28. And then when he discovers she's dead and gets her back home, what does he do? It's almost unthinkable, isn't it? He graphically, he gruesomely determines to call for justice. Yet, he does so, as we will see, in a way that is less than completely honest. He cuts up the parts of her body. Delivers them to the 12 tribes in Israel. Can you imagine it? And with those body parts went a message of this is what has happened to me. This is what has taken place in Israel. This is what has gone on in the city of Gibeah among the tribe of Benjamin. When he's called upon to speak to what happened, we see he shades the truth. Look at chapter 20, the first seven verses here, because when the tribes of Israel get these body parts, they cry out. They say, nothing like this has ever happened before in our nation. What must we do? 
So verse 1 of chapter 20, Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Bathsheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? Here's the question put to the Levite. Listen to his answer. Verse 4. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she's dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country and the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Now, did this man lie or did he tell the truth? They asked him what happened. And he speaks very eloquently about what happened. Did he lie? Did he tell the truth? He stretched the truth. And then he edited the truth at points in order to make himself look better than he really is. Listen to it again in verse 5. These men at Gibeah meant to kill me. Well, maybe that's what would have happened. But what they wanted was to rape him. He stretches the truth. And then he says, they violated my concubine. Well, that's true, isn't it? But aren't you left with the impression that they just kind of broke down the door and came and got her? He doesn't say anything about his complicity in how they got to his concubine. He made her go out to them, but he conveniently avoids saying that part. He wants justice, which is a morally good thing, but he's dishonest in the way that he pursues it, which is a morally bad thing. And so what we see here is moral confusion. The author of this text subtly underscores Levite's moral confusion by the language that he uses to speak of him. Repeatedly, he refers to him as the concubine's husband. In verse 3 of chapter 19, verse 4 of chapter 20, he also refers to the wife's father as his father-in-law. He, he's highlighting this relationship that is almost a marriage with respect that a marriage carries with it. But then, in chapter 19, verse 27, he refers to this Levite as her master, showing the confused relationship that this guy has with her. And though the Levite was certainly partly responsible for what happened to his concubine, he sees himself, and he wants everybody else to see him as a victim. This just happened to me. How's it give you? Seeking shelter for the night. And these guys tried to kill me. And they took my concubine. And they violated her and murdered her. That's the way he's telling the story. What's he doing? He's editing his story. He's trying to make himself appear different than he really is. He wants to be seen by the people that are listening to him as virtuous and as a virtuous victim. Though he was a Levite from the tribe designed by God to call out holy men 
to serve Israel. This man is a coward. He's cold-hearted and he's calculating. And the reason he is that way is because he has figured out a way to live that is far less than the way that God has revealed that he ought to live. We could say he's been influenced by God's will, God's word. But he is far from being submissive to God's will, God's word. His religion is homemade. And as a result, he's morally confused. But he's not the only one who's morally confused. This old man who is his host in Gibeah shows that quality as well. This man insists on showing hospitality to the Levite and his concubine. He's concerned with them staying in the town square. Remember, there's no holiday inns in ancient Israel. You were dependent upon the hospitality of the people who lived the place where you were traveling to. And so this man knows that if he stays out there, these Gibeites are so wicked that no telling what might happen to them. So he wants to provide protection. He wants to provide hospitality. Even when the man says, we got plenty of straw, we got plenty of food, we can take care of ourselves, we have provisions. He says in verse 20, I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. And then this man shows more virtue when he resists the efforts of those Gibeites who want to rape the Levite. Verse 23, they say, give us this man. I mean, it's wicked. The, the text uses a euphemism, euphemism here. We want to know him. What they're talking about is know him sexually. They intend to violate him sexually. And so this host knows that, and he says in 1923, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. That's a good, morally righteous response. I mean, don't you just see this? You want to applaud him for that. Till you read the next verse. What is he saying here? He offers up his own daughter and the concubine to rapists. Behold, here my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do no outrageous thing. What in the world is going on? As a father of five daughters, I read this and I think, is this guy brain dead? Can you imagine how his daughter must have felt hearing that? Dad, what? What's going on? Moral confusion. Here's a guy who's figured out a way to live and he's in a dilemma now, so he tries to grab this and grab that and, and try to Get out of the dilemma the best way he knows how without being fully submitted to the God who has revealed what righteousness entails in his word. How do these kind of ambiguities live? This moral confusion exists side by side in one person. They can exist because in both the host and the Levite, they, we see men who are living according to their own homemade religion they figured it out on their own they're willing to be a little religious over here and acknowledge God over here when it goes along with what they think but then they will do other things according to standards that they themselves have come up with when they get in a bind we see it in the Gibeites that city I mean this is a city in the tribe of Benjamin the reason that the Levite wouldn't stop at Jebus is because it was still a stronghold of Canaanite people. It had not yet become Jerusalem 
the headquarters of Israel, Judah. And so when he sees the opportunity to stop there, he says, no, we're going to keep going to one of our own cities, one of the cities of the tribes of Israel. And yet, these people, Benjamites, covenant people of God, they had God's law. They'd experienced God's blessings. They were living in the land that God had given them. And yet, how are they described to us by the author? Look at verse 22 of chapter 19. He says, the men of the city were worthless fellows. Worthless fellows. Literally, the phrase is, they are sons of the children of Belial. Belial became identified later with the prince of darkness, the devil himself. And so what he's telling us here is these are children of the devil, people of God, in the land of God, covenant of God, and yet identified as being like the devil himself. You know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, probably the story that I read about what happened in Gibeah sounded somewhat familiar to you. Because it is very familiar, very similar to what happened in Genesis 19. In Genesis 19, there we have two angels that go down to the city of Sodom before God is bringing judgment upon that part of the world. And Lot takes them in, Abraham's nephew. And he gives them hospitality. And so when they are there, the men of the city surround the house and they say, send out those two men who are strangers that you're showing hospitality to so that we might know them carnally. They want to do the same thing. They want to rape those what they think are men. Lot does the same thing. This is wicked. Here are my daughters. Same kind of moral confusion. Only that situation ended with the angels causing those men of the city to be blinded and then God raining down judgment upon Sodom so that they were able to escape. But here, the story doesn't end that way. This is a city in God's chosen, among God's chosen people in God's promised land. What the author is doing by telling the story the way he does is drawing parallels between Gibeah and Sodom. The point he's making is the people of God are living like Sodomites. They're living like pagans. There's no discernible difference in the way they think, in the courses that they pursue. They've been so canonized that at many points their morality is the morality of the unbelieving pagan people they live around. Brothers and sisters, can't this be said of Christians in America today? Isn't it also true for us today? Are there moral practices in your life that are not discernibly different from the moral practices of your unbelieving neighbors and co-workers, family members? How do you use your time? How do you think about your time? God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The world says, well, Sunday's just one more day of the weekend. Stretch it as long as you can. How do you use your words how do you speak god says we're not to let any corrupt communication come out of our mouths the world says man you need to give as good as you get 
You need to be able to put people off and fend your way with how you talk. How do you think about and use your finances? Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in to steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt and where the thieves do not break in and steal. And yet, what does the world say? Get all you can, can all you get. Hang on to whatever you can because you only go around once. Brothers and sisters, we need to be willing to examine ourselves in the light of this revelation and ask God to help us to see what's true of ourselves. Have we been shaped in our thinking more by the world than we have by the Lord at key points of how we live? If you're not sincerely devoted to Christ as Lord, you're not willing to open up every area of your life to Him as Lord, then you will inevitably begin to make up your own standards of what is good, what is wrong, what is right, what is bad. And you will inevitably live a morally confused life. You'll have some commendable qualities in your life living side by side with others that violate God's clearly revealed will. It's moral confusion. It's the inevitable outworking of homemade religion. That's not all we see in this closing section of Judges. We also see that homemade religion causes perversion of justice. This is revealed in the way that Israel responds to what happened in Gibeah. The other 11 tribes, excluding Benjamin, because they didn't join in, met at Mitzpah. And when they got there, they discovered they had 400,000 soldiers ready for war. And they asked the Levite, tell us what happened. And after they heard from him, they devised a plan of response. Listen to it. In Judges chapter 20, I'm going to start reading in verse 8, found on page 219 and continuing on through 220. Verse 8, And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do at Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people that they may come, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they've committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin, through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows of Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites, Benjaminites, would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities that day 26,000 men who drew the sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that city. 
on that day, 22,000 men of the Israelites, but the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? The Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And, the, and Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these men were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go up once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at the other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. And the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Marah Geba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard. And the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they had made a great cloud of smoke rise up in the city, the men of Israel should, re should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, and they said, surely they're defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of whom were men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gidom. 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they had found they set on fire. It's quite an amazing display of military warfare and bloodshed. The 11 tribes of Israel turned against the one tribe, Benjamin. And they did so 
saying that they were pursuing them and going to punish them as an act of justice. Verse 10 of chapter 20, they intend, they say, to repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they've committed in Israel. Now they start off well in verse 13. They make a proper request to the Benjaminites and say, send out to us these worthless fellows of Gibeah that we may put them to death and purge Israel from this evil. But when that didn't work and the men were not turned over to them, they took matters into their own hands. And they decided that they were going to administer justice according to their own standards. There's no indication that they asked God what they should do. Once they did decide what they were going to do, they asked him which tribe should go up first. There's no indication that they consulted the law of God, which is not silent about what to do in cases of sexual abuse and murder. There's no indication that they consulted that. With 400,000 men, they attacked Gibeah with its 26,000 Benjaminites and 700 left-handed marksmen who could hit a hare with a stone from a sling. And as they attacked initially, they were defeated. They were overcome. And they attacked again, they were defeated. The third time they go to attack, they set an ambush, and the Lord promises them that they will be victorious. And with that ambush, they wreaked havoc, not only on Gibeah, burning it to the ground and destroying all the people that were in there, but all of the other cities around there in the tribe of Benjamin, so much so that verse 47 says, of all the tribe of Benjamin, only 600 men were left. And they went to this rock of Ramon and there sought refuge. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 says, even the merciful acts of the wicked are cruel. And in a similar way, we must say that even the just actions of the morally bankrupt are perverted. What a perverted example of justice chapter 20 presents to us. The book of Judges begins with all the tribes of Israel gathered together before the Lord as one man asking which of them shall go up to battle first. And he says Judah. But on that occasion, they were to go to fight against the Canaanites to remove the influence of the Canaanites from the land of promise. Now, for the first time in the book of Judges, the whole nation is united again as one man, but not to destroy the Canaanite way of life, but to destroy their own brothers. And what they served up is not justice, it's vengeance. It's vengeance. In the aftermath of their outbreak of revenge they grieve the consequences of their actions it's as if so much bloodshed finally got to them and they saw those 600 men seeking refuge at that rock and they began to ask what have we done what do we do if you look at chapter 21 verse 1 the text says now the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly, and they said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? Isn't that the way we are? We do stuff contrary to the will of God. It creates a mess. And then we say, God, 
Why is this happening? They said, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mitzvah saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for the wives of those who are left since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? This is an amazing scene. They look at the bloodshed that they've created, the havoc that they've wreaked upon the nation of Israel, and they weep, and they pray. In verse 4, they go through the motions of worship as if they are spiritually fit to enter into God's presence, having just obliterated His clearly revealed will. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, what do they do? They take matters into their own hands again. They face a moral dilemma of their own making. Not only have they perverted justice by giving vent to vengeance, they also swore not to give any of their daughters in marriage to the Benjaminites. They made an oath. Now that oath is not according to God's Word. The Bible nowhere tells any of the tribes of Israel they may not give their daughters in marriage to any of the other tribes of Israel. What God did forbid was giving their daughters to those who were worshipers of pagan gods from other nations. But these Israelites have concocted an oath that has nothing to do with God's clearly revealed will. And now... They feel bound by it. Do you see the irony here? <laughs> Do you see the, the moral confusion that is being held before us? They blatantly violated God's law by nearly annihilating a whole tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And then they made an unlawful vow not to give their daughters to any man of Benjamin. And now, as they look around at the consequences of their lawless actions, they suddenly have scruples about their vow. They just murdered hundreds of people, thousands of people. And now suddenly, but you know, we, we made a promise that we weren't going to let our daughters marry any of those men. And so they seek for a solution. And the solution they propose further reveals how morally bank bankrupt they are as they continue to pervert justice. They're going to provide brides for these 600 men of Benjamin. And the way they do it is, first of all, determining that there was one city in the 11 tribes that did not send anyone up to Mitzvah to join forces against Benjamin. So they determined to attack that city and take the unmarried women from that city and give to the Benjaminites. Look at verse 8 of chapter 21. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mitzvah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, 
and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But there were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So they go and murder more of their fellow Israelites and take these 400 unmarried women and give them to the 600 men of Benjamin that are without wives. And they realize, wait a minute, we're 200 short. What do we do now? Well, they come up with another plan. They're going to steal 200 women from Shiloh, one of their own cities. Look at verse 16. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for, the wives, for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives, his wife, gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, south of Lebanon. And they, they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man and his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers and their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. And they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Do you see the perversion of justice here? Do you see it? To correct the wrongs that resulted from their unbridled vengeance against the Benjamites, they offer two solutions. First, kill everyone in Jabesh Gilead except for the 400 unmarried women that you find there and give those women to the men at Benjamin and then tell the other 200 men at Benjamin to go and kidnap unmarried women in Shiloh when the city of Shiloh is engaged in a religious festival before the Lord. And when the dads and the brothers of those kidnapped women come and protest, we'll say, hey, listen, just let it go. I mean, after all, Benjamites need to have wives. And it's not like you gave your daughters to them, so you're really not guilty. You see the perverted thinking? They think this is a good idea. They think they're being just here. This is what happens when you brew up your own religion. Morality becomes a matter of your own personal ingenuity. You no longer have a fixed moral compass. And the epitaph that it will be written upon such a life that goes down that road is the exact same epitaph we see written in the last verse of the book of Judges, verse 25 of chapter 21. There was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what's going on here. You see, brothers and sisters, it is true for every one of us, for every person that ever lives, somebody is going to be your king. Somebody is going to be your Lord. You are going to live for somebody. Might be your spouse, might be your parents, 
Might be your children, might be your grandchildren. Most likely in and through anything else, it will be yourself. We're going to live for somebody. Somebody is going to hold sway in our thinking. When you live that way, you don't have to give up religion altogether. You can mix a little allegiance to God with your own thinking. You can pray, you can read the Bible, you can come to church, and yet still, in your mind, stand in judgment against the things that He reveals that go contrary to what your inclinations are and your desires in service to your own King. That's what's happening here. When you live that way, no matter how much religious talk you engage in, no matter how much religious activity you engage in, you're actually doing what is right in your own eyes. So we need to ask ourselves the question this morning, is that the way we're living? Are you living in submission to the revealed will of God or according to that which you've concocted in your own efforts to figure things out? If you are living according to your own way of thinking things ought to be, giving a passing glance to what the Bible actually says, my dear friend, you're on the wrong road. You're being deceived. And in that deception, you're being destroyed, thinking that you're okay with God when you're on a spiritually dead-end road. You've gone off course. And you need to acknowledge it and repent of it and come back in humble submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and say, oh Lord, I give you my life. You are my Lord. I want to believe everything that you say. I want to do everything that you reveal. Because that's the way of our Creator. That's the way of life. If you are guilty before God this morning, friend, you're in a dangerous place. But I've got good news for you. See, homemade religion does indeed pervert justice. Homemade religion does indeed create moral confusion. But homemade religion can never out-sin God's grace. There's always more grace in God than there is sin in you and me. And that's the hope and the good news of the Bible. Where do we see that? Well, we see it in the fact that Israel wasn't utterly destroyed. God destroyed Sodom. God was patient, merciful to Gibeah, to Israel. He destroyed the wicked people in that plain where Lot lived. But he made provision to save his own people who were guilty of the same kinds of sin. And though his people sinned grievously, our God, because of his greatness and grace, bears with us patiently. None of the human judges in the era of judges that we've just studied through could do for the people of Israel what they needed done. The people of Israel never submitted themselves wholly to God, Yahweh, as Lord during this era. But He would not give up on them. He wouldn't throw them away. And the reason is not because they were so good. It's not because He saw potential in them. The reason is because He's faithful. 
He's faithful to His promises. And He had promised their forefather Abraham that He was going to make of him a great nation, a family of nations that would bless the whole world. And that from Abraham's seed, there would come a judge, a king, a ruler, a savior who would save the world from sin. So he's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to himself. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 that where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. And that's the way that God deals with his people in Christ. And if you're in Christ, if Christ is your Lord, Christ is your Savior, you're trusting Christ, you profess Christ to be your one and only Savior, then brothers, sisters, believe the faithfulness of God that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You don't have to edit your life. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not. You can take your moral confusion, you can take your perversion of justice and acknowledge it before God and cry out to Him as the God of grace to restore you, to teach you, to bring you more fully under His authority as He's revealed it in His Word. No judge in Israel could do that for the nation. Indeed, every judge in Israel, individually and all of them collectively, left Israel sorely lacking in wisdom, in righteousness, in holiness, and in redemption. And as the book of Judges ends, it does so on a note of dissatisfaction. It ends causing us to long for more. Long for a true and better judge. And God has sent that true and better judge in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that God has made Christ to be for us wisdom from God. Sanctification, righteousness, and redemption. Everything that Samson and Jephthah, Barak, Gideon could not be and do, Jesus Christ is and has done. So how should we respond to the book of Judges? What difference should it make in our lives practically? I believe the book of Judges serves as a very effective mirror for us today. To honestly see ourselves in the light of what God actually says. And it provides occasion for us to ask some probing questions of ourselves. Our God is a wholehearted God, fully faithful to Himself. Is our devotion to Him wholehearted? Or is it half-hearted? Have I become more influenced by the unbelieving world than I have by the Word of God, His revealed will? Do I sense how actually desperate I am for His deliverance, for His grace to save me? The time of the judges left the Israelites looking forward to the true and better judge, the one who would come completely to rule over them and so effectively save them that they would be delivered from their sin forever. Today, we look back to that true and better judge, God incarnate, Jesus Christ Himself. And just as the Israelites were taught to long for Him, we are taught to remember Him. Remember Him. So when Paul is sitting in that Roman prison months away from having his head taken from his shoulders, an elderly apostle, having run his course, he writes to his young protege Timothy, a pastor, and he says to him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 2, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead 
the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, the saying is trustworthy for if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope. Not that we will somehow do better, not that we will somehow attain, not that we'll somehow deserve the salvation that we so desperately need. Our hope is that there is a God in heaven who has promised he will save his people from their sins. It's going to happen. And the way he has done it is in Christ. So remember Jesus Christ. Hope in Jesus Christ. Confess your sin with the awareness that there is a Savior for sinners. And believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Judges. Help us to see ourselves in a mirror. The very things that we find so obvious in your ancient people that are still true of us. And forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousnesses. And show us Christ. And enable us to trust in him and hope in him. For we pray in his name. Amen.